I'm feeling my weakness very keenly this morning, so I'm going to pray for the Lord's strengthening as I preach. Father, your word promises, with my God I can conquer a thousand, with my God I can scale a wall. Lord, I pray for your strengthening this morning um, as I preach and as we listen. Lord, we so deeply, desperately need you to help us, um, to help us understand your word as it is spoken, um, to help us to put it into practice as we hear, to not be those who harden our hearts and uh, refuse you, um, turn our heads away from you, um, but those who look to your hand as your children, eager to know you and do what is right. So please strengthen us now, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So last week we uh, studied the first part Oh, of Acts uh, chapter 2 together. Um, and uh, we have a lot of visitors and newcomers in today. So uh, some of you won't hear for the first part of Acts chapter 2, um, but it's the part where the Holy Spirit is poured out by God on the disciples on the day of Pentecost. And so we read last week that the immediate effect of the Spirit's coming was that they spoke out in various languages telling in all these languages and tongues and dialects the mighty works of God. And Jews were there in Jerusalem for the feast from all over the Roman Empire, and they gathered around this sound, the sound of the mighty wind, the sound of the many languages, and they were amazed by what they heard. Each person gathered there heard speech in his own language and dialect, declaring the mighty works of God. And so they started looking around to one another and asking, what does this mean? So Peter, the apostle, suddenly found that he had a captive audience of several thousand people. And so he seized the opportunity to answer their question and to spread the good news about Jesus. What does this mean? So today we're going to jump straight back in to Acts chapter 2, and we're going to pick up the story at verse 14. So I think it's page 910 of the Church Bibles, Acts chapter 2, 910. So uh, this is the part that Bev wonderfully delivered for us, and we call it Peter's Pentecost Sermon. And it's a life-changing sermon, 3,000 lives were changed on the day that Peter gave it. And if I ever preach a sermon like that, I'm sure I'll be dancing all the way home. (laughs) So Peter's life-changing Pentecost sermon responds to their question, what does this mean? With the answer, it means that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. So if we look to the end of what he says in verse 36, that's his conclusion. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, as Peter spoke, he appealed to the house of Israel. They're they're the people he was addressing. And he really knew his audience. He knew what they already understood. He knew what they had already experienced, which authorities they already trusted, And Peter built his whole case for Jesus on those things. So I want to briefly trace out for you how Peter brought them to the right conclusion about Jesus 
based on the evidence that they already had. So Peter's starting point was the miraculous events of that very morning. The sights and the sounds that they had all just experienced together. The sound of the mighty wind, the sight of flames of fire, and the sudden fluency in foreign languages. The power of God was on display for them that morning. And these particular signs that they experienced indicated to the Jewish mind the work of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so that's where Peter started, with the experience of their own senses, suggesting that the Holy Spirit had just come to over a hundred people at once. And then Peter interpreted it in light of another authority they already trusted, the Old Testament prophet Joel. So Peter quotes Joel in Acts 2, verse 17. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and then skipping down to the end in verse 21, God promises that in those days, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So Peter used the prophet Joel to draw two connections with his audience. First, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit demonstrated that they had entered a period called the last days. And second, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit demonstrated that the way of salvation had been opened so that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, both of those connections <clears throat> would have strongly suggested to them a third conclusion that the Messiah had come. Because the last days were associated in the Jewish mind with the age of the Messiah, with God's anointed king. And this Messiah was the figure that everybody was expecting would come and save them. So, if Peter was right, and the Holy Spirit had been poured out according to Joel's prophecy, then they should start right away looking around to identify their Messiah. And that's what Peter wanted to talk about next, the identity of the long-awaited Messiah. He is Jesus. The Messiah means, literally in Hebrew, the anointed one. And in particular, it meant anointed to reign, anointed as a king. So the first kings of Israel, Saul and David, were anointed with oil by the prophet Samuel. And David in particular took that anointing very seriously. So we just read from 1 Samuel chapter 24, and there we heard David calling his enemy Saul the Lord's anointed. Right? Did you hear it? He says it several times. David says, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed to put out my hand against him, for he is the Lord's anointed. And that phrase in Hebrew is the Lord's Messiah. So King David pretty much invented the language of the Messiah. It was because of God's promise to David that the people were waiting for a new Messiah. And so it would make a lot of sense for them to identify their Messiah on David's own authority. So that's exactly what Peter does. He quotes King David from Psalm 16, where he says, You will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. And that, says Peter, is a prophecy of resurrection. David, being a prophet, foresaw that the Messiah would be raised from the dead. And that, of course, points to Jesus. Peter says in verse 32, This Jesus God raised up. And of that, we are all witnesses. 
So then, by the powerful identity test that David himself proposed, Jesus is proven to be the promised Messiah, the Christ that they were all expecting. Because he just fulfilled Joel's prophecy and poured out the Holy Spirit on all these people. And that gift of the Holy Spirit proves something even more about Jesus, which is that he has ascended to the Father's throne, to the very right hand of God. He must have, or he wouldn't have been able to receive the Holy Spirit in order to pour him out. And again, that's King David who proves it from Psalm 110, where David says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So Peter's second conclusion is that Jesus is also Lord. By that we mean God, sitting in heaven at the right hand of the Father. Not just the Christ, but both Lord and Christ. And that's the conclusion Peter set out to demonstrate. In answer to their question, what does this mean? Peter proved to his Jewish audience that Jesus is both Lord and Christ by bringing together the experiences of their own senses with the truth that they already understood, expectations they already held, and authorities they already trusted, and with Peter's own testimony as an eyewitness. And so the people were quick to listen and quick to believe Peter. They, it says they were cut to the heart, and they asked Peter and the others a question. Brothers, what should we do? In other words, what should we do in response to this? What should we do to be saved? And Peter gave them clear instructions, which have three parts. Peter said, repent, be baptized, and receive the Holy Spirit. Okay, three parts. What should we do to be saved? Repent, be baptized, and receive the Holy Spirit. Now, in the past few months, we've done a good bit of teaching focused on baptism. And then last week, we focused on what it means to receive the Holy Spirit. So today, I want to complete the set of three, complete that triad, and I want to focus our attention on this first word, repent. Peter's instruction to repent. Now, we haven't talked about repentance all that much here at Incarnation, but it is a very important word in the New Testament. It's John the Baptist's first word when he comes on the scene to prepare the way of the Lord. He says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And when Jesus begins his own ministry, he starts with that same message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And here's Peter starting in the same way. So we need to ask, what does it mean to repent? Well, our English word repent derives from the Latin, and it means to rethink, right? Simply just to think again. Um, and that's the way that we translate the Greek word metanoia, which means to change your mind. So we can think of it cognitively about changing your mind about Jesus. But in both the Greek and the Hebrew versions of this word, changing your mind is never just a theoretical process. It's always practical, too. It's always changing behavior as a result of changing your mind. So it's not just a change in your understanding. It's also a change in your lifestyle. So the word for repent can also be used in both Hebrew and Greek to mean to turn around, to return, to come back again. Um, and I think for us, that's the most helpful way to think about the word. So I'm going to illustrate with my body to keep you entertained. Um, <laughs> here I am. I'm heading this way. And this is the path that leads towards sin and death. 
Um, and if I ask the question, what must I do to be saved, the answer is, naturally, turn around, right? Uh, stop going that way and start going this way. And if I do turn around, then there's two things that happen at once. Firstly, I'm turning my back on something over here. And secondly, I'm turning to face something over here. I'm turning my back on sin and death behind me, and I'm turning my face toward Jesus and faith. Um, so here, in one movement, you can see the connection between repentance and faith. Okay, So I'm on the path towards sin and death, I'm repenting, and I'm putting my faith in Jesus. The two things happen at once. They're part almost of the same movement. So your life changes when you repent and believe, quite naturally. That's why James wrote, faith without works is dead. It doesn't matter whether you say you believe, if there's no evidence that you've turned around. John the Baptist's first word, and Jesus' first word, and Peter's first word to everyone was, repent. They said it to everyone, to the whole audience. And that presupposes that everybody needed to repent. That nobody was going the right way naturally. That everybody was going the wrong way. And that's right. That's what the Bible clearly teaches in other places. That we all naturally head this way. That this is the direction that we choose. And this is the path God finds all of us walking on when he calls to us. So here I am again, walking on the way of sin and death. And I start listening to God's voice calling to me as I walk. Have I become a Christian yet? No. So I keep walking. And as I listen to God's voice, I start to think, well, maybe there's something in this. Maybe there's some truth here. And I keep walking. Have I become a Christian yet? No. no. So I keep walking. And I actually, as I listen to God's voice, I agree with what God's saying. And I think, you know, that's right. I'm going to believe that. And I'm going to tell other people about it. Have I become a Christian yet? No. No, still not yet. So then I decide I'm going to turn around and put my faith in the Lord Jesus. And it's going to change my life. Now have I become a Christian? Yes, okay? So the turning is the important moment. And you can see the importance of this word repent, why it's such a central word in the scriptures. It's a simple idea, but it's a very crucial idea. Now, I think that some people do, you know, it's a silly illustration, but I think some people do go ahead and do that through their Christian lives. They continue walking in the way of sin and death. They've never actually turned around, and they think that they're living the Christian life. So what happens is that they go on for a couple of years or maybe even a couple of decades, and then they decide to give up on this whole thing, that there's nothing in it, because they haven't done the first thing that God asks of people, which is to repent. Now, after we've repented and turned around, that doesn't automatically mean that every part of us has an easy time with the new direction, okay? <laughs> so I'm, I'm here, I'm walking in the new direction, and maybe for a while my left arm is punking out, <laughs> and it's still trying to go in the old direction, because that's what it's used to. So what I do is I train it to come back. No, we're going this way now. And as I keep going, my leg is, is, is still going in the way that it knows. So I have to um, train my legs to come back in line. This is the way we're going now. And while that's, those things are happening, and that happens throughout our whole lives, does it mean that we've stopped being Christians? No. It just means that we're learning the new way, and the old habits die hard. And we have to keep work, continually bringing our whole selves into the new direction. And that's why we all say the confession together every week. And we all tell God every week that we earnestly repent. Did you notice that word's in our confession? Um, 
because we know that although there's one big repentance that happens one time where we make our big turnaround, there's also lots of little repentances, like little echoes of that, um, where we have to keep repenting, keep bringing ourselves in line with the new way. And actually, that pattern is the same for all three parts of Peter's triad. They all kind of work that way, don't they? So um, with water baptism, there's a one-time major event, a sacrament for the forgiveness of sins. But then are we done being forgiven our sins for the rest of our lives? No, we have to keep saying sorry to God and we have to keep receiving his forgiveness. And then with the Holy Spirit, we're baptized with the Holy Spirit one time when we come into the faith. That's a kind of major event. The Spirit isn't taken away again every time we're bad. Uh, he, he's with us for the rest of our lives. But does that mean we, we, need, we can stop being filled with the Holy Spirit, that we always have him there? No. We, the, we see it in Acts. The apostles are filled with the Holy Spirit on multiple occasions um, when he comes to them in strength for specific needs. So all three of those things, there's a major one-time event and then a succession of echoes going forward. All right, so in this little illustration, you can see how the parts of Peter's triad fit together as well. Okay, so here I am walking in this direction, um, and I'm walking the way of sin and death. I've already said that as you turn, you repent, and you put your faith in Jesus. So what's baptism? Baptism is cleansing you of everything behind, everything in your past, and cutting those ties of everything that was part of that old life of sin and death. And what's the baptism of the Holy Spirit? It's the gift to have the strength to walk in the new direction. So you can see that all the parts fit together um, and they're all part and parcel of God's um, way of salvation for all people. We all need it. These are all gifts that we need to live our new lives in God. All right, so that's repentance. That's the theory. That's what it means. Uh, it looks like turning around. Now, uh, what does it look like in practice? Well, Jesus gave us the perfect illustration for what it looks like in practice when he taught the parable of the prodigal son. And that's why I chose that for our gospel reading today. You probably noticed that I left out the end part about the older brother, which is a wonderful part. But I wanted to focus our attention um, on the younger son's repentance. So it says he came to himself or he came to his senses in the foreign country. And he said to himself, I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned <laughs> against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So there in those words, we can see exactly the right attitude of repentance. We're going back to our father on our knees and admitting that we were wrong. And particularly that we were wrong about him that we had a faulty view of God, that we believed a lie about him. And that's always the primary reason we're walking down this road of sin in the first place, that we believe something untrue about God. And that was, that was what it was for the prodigal son. He believed that his father was a boring killjoy who restricted his freedom while the exciting world passed them all by. And it was the same for Adam and Eve in the garden with that forbidden fruit. The serpent said, you will not surely die, but God knows when you eat of it, you will be like him, knowing good and evil. And they sinned against God because they believed that slanderous lie about God's character. And so do we. It's not always the same lie, but it's usually some variation 
on one of those. God is boring. God doesn't want the best for me. God doesn't love me. God isn't really good. God doesn't even exist. Something along those lines. We end up believing a lie about the Lord. And so the heart of repentance needs to be changing our minds about God, fixing our picture of God in heaven, and then saying sorry for the injustice we did him by believing that lie. That's what the prodigal son did in Jesus' parable. And of course, in our story, as well as that story, the father receives us back with joy and kindness. So we've talked about what repentance is and what it looks like, and now for the hard question, and that is, of course, have we done it? Have we repented? And I think as I've explained it, some of us in this room will honestly have to answer no. We know that we haven't yet repented. We've come to realize that we're still going this way, and we need to turn around. Now, maybe you've just started to hear about Jesus. Actually, maybe this is the first time you've heard about him. Um, and maybe you're not ready to trust in him yet. And that's fine. You can take your time. You can get to know him before you decide. You can't repent until you've come to realize what it is that you've been wrong about God for, why you've been wrong about God, um, and what the truth is instead. It's only when you come to that point that you can really repent. Um, so that... That word of the prodigal son has to come from your own heart. That father I have sinned, it has to come right out of the depths of you from deep personal conviction. You can't fake it, and no one can do it for you. That's right. But know that when you're ready, God is inviting you and waiting for you to turn back to him. That is the first next step to take, and he's provided everything you need to take it. When Peter preached his Pentecost sermon, 3,000 people found it persuasive, and they repented. But in our context in 21st century Tallahassee, we might not find it so persuasive. All this talk of kings and prophets and messiahs is totally foreign to us if we haven't grown up in the church. Um, we don't recognize the signs of the Holy Spirit, and we're not waiting for God to save us. So Peter's sermon was the perfect clincher for them. But to us, it might sound like news, from, news radio from a distant foreign country. And that's okay. God is able to meet us where we are too and tell us the truth in our own native language. And Pentecost proves that he can do that. Mm -hmm. So today, he's speaking to Africans in miracles by the hundreds and Arab Muslims in dreams by the hundreds, because those are the languages that those peoples understand. And he hasn't given up on Westerners either, okay? <laughs> so um, I'm going to try and explain the gospel to Westerners this morning. Um, and here's where I want to start, is, is we know a lot about science, okay? We know a lot of science. Uh, we know more science than other peoples in the history of the world have known, probably by a hundred times more science than people knew a hundred years ago, all right? We know so much. Um, and uh, at the same time as everything we know, we also find um, that the natural world around us is uh, not big enough to fulfill who we are, right? We look to it and we do, not, we do not find satisfaction. So we know that the world is unspeakably amazing. We all learned that in school. 
And we know about the spinning of the atoms and the atmospheres of the moons of distant planets and the strange creatures that live in the deep oceans and make their own little lights. <laughs> and every day you can read about a new scientific discovery. So last week the Cassini probe crashed into the atmosphere of Saturn. And right at this moment, the Curiosity rover is driving around on the planet Mars and sending back pictures. And we know that wherever you point your microscope or your telescope, you see wonders, wonders. Breathtaking intricacy, beauty, and complexity. A new wonder every day. They never, ever run out. The world goes on giving us its sights and smells and colors and flavors and designs. And they go on and on and on and on, seemingly forever. Who would not be satisfied to live in a world like this one and to experience the things that we experience here? But we are not, are we? We're not. All these wonders still leave us hungry. They are more than we can possibly imagine, but somehow still less than we need. Who is truly filled up and satisfied by the material world with all its spectacular abundance? No one. And so people all around us are searching, reaching for what lies beyond our senses, reaching for what we might call spiritual reality. They're looking for it. Our friends and neighbors are looking for it all over the place. They're hunting in yoga meditation and new age practices and ancient religions. Some of you are here this morning looking for it. Mm -hmm. And there are good and bad places to find it. But it shows the hunger that is in people's hearts, that the needle of our culture has swung pretty violently somewhere in the last three decades. From science is everything we need and has all our answers to science has nothing interesting for me. It can't tell me who I am, so I'm off to meditate. Right? You really don't meet very many honest-to-goodness materialists these days who really believe everything in existence can be described purely in terms of matter and energy. I actually met one this week. Um, and it surprised me. It made me realize how rare they've become. It showed me how dramatically our culture needle has swung this way. People are searching and they're hungry for spiritual connection to fill up their hungry souls. And I'm in favor of this move because it's a step closer to the truth. But if you're here on some kind of spiritual treasure hunt, I want you to remember this. That all this science over here, all these wonders, are still true. It's still true, and it's still amazing. So what is science in this whole picture? Isn't it a signpost to the truth? The fact that this material world left you hungry and wanting more suggests that this spiritual world really is greater, that satisfaction must be found here. And if the spiritual is greater than the material, then it stands to reason that the spiritual gave birth to the material, that it created it. So if what science shows us about the material is amazing, how amazing is the spiritual world that created it? All that science can know is merely reflected glory. It studies by moonlight. How bright then is the day? But just because it's moonlight doesn't give us a reason to ignore it. It's still some light. It can still point us to the truth about God. So half a century ago we said science is God, and now we say science has nothing to do with God. What if we take the middle road and say science is a signpost to God because it's the study of things God made? Where then does it point? It points 
to an incredible mind. At every scale from nanometers to light years, the level of organization in the universe is breathtaking. It points to a spectacular artistry. When you get home, if you haven't seen it, look up Cassini's pictures of the North Pole of Saturn, where there's a hexagonal storm eternally raging. And tell me that God isn't a spectacular artist. It points to a mighty power to raise up mountains and fill the oceans with giant creatures. And it even points to a vibrant and playful personality to paint spots on the ladybugs and teach puppies to play. The material world might not satisfy us in itself, but knowing its creator would satisfy us, would overwhelm us. We ourselves derive from him which explains why we love his world so much and why we're so like him and why we long for him. And he has reached down to know us, speaking to people from earliest times and then coming to us in human form, a man called Jesus, to search us out and bring us home to him. So when we meet Jesus in the accounts of his life, we recognize him, we recognize him from deep in our beings as people who studied by moonlight, we recognize the sun. He's so abundantly, overflowingly human. It's like meeting the original from which everybody else was copied. Jesus puts God within the reach of our senses and he shows us what our creator is like. He died so that he could show his love for us and then he rose again to show his power over death. And now God has made this Jesus both Lord and Christ, both God and King. Now many of us sitting in this room today know this and have repented. And we've turned around on the road that leads to sin and we've turned off the road that leads to sin and death. Um, and we've started following in the way of Jesus. And so we ourselves, like Peter was a witness to the resurrection, we ourselves are witnesses to this new road, that it is the way of life and peace. And we declare that it is within the power of a human soul to know God and to find rest. So we invite you to share this with us, to repent, to turn and come home to know God. And if that's something that you'd like to do this morning, then we'd like to pray for you and with you. So during our time of communion, We'll have prayer teams standing at the back of the church, and they'd love to pray prayers of repentance with you. It can be a very simple little prayer. I'm going to close with the one that Jesus puts on the lips of the prodigal son again. He came to his senses, and he said, I will rise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants.